The reading today is Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Hear what the Lord says. Rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the controversy of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a controversy with his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done for you? And what, and what have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what King Balak of Moab devised, what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000, <clears throat> I'm sorry, with 10,000s of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. The word of God for the people of God. About two years ago today, my family had the immense privilege of attending the first communion of my high school best friend's oldest son. Now, on the drive up, uh, I took the time to explain to my then seven-year-old uh, what was going to be happening. And let me tell you, explaining Catholic religious ritual uh, was an interesting endeavor especially in an upbringing uh, tradition like she's in now. So when I first told her that Henry was taking Holy Communion for the very first time, she was appalled. I'm, I'm not sure at who. Maybe she thought it was the pandemic or Henry's parents or who knows. But she said, you mean he's never had communion before? And I... I said, no, honey, and in the lengthy drive to the Basilica and Shrine of Our Lady of Consolation in Cary, where the service would be held, I tried, to, tried my best to explain to her what would be happening. And me, the intuitive mother that I am, made sure to tell her, because we can't be uh, left out of things, it's a big deal in our family, I explained to her that in the church service, a lot of people would be going up for communion, but we wouldn't. A simple, there are just some things that in Henry's church they do differently seem to suffice for her. The service was stunning. I mean, if you haven't ever been up to the Basilica in Cary, you should, you should make a trip and go. It's lovely. And during the service, I literally wept watching this young man and his classmates receive Eucharist for the first time. This is the, the kid that 
When he was born, I went out uh, to their house. They lived in Indiana at the time, and um, I was pregnant with Graham but hadn't told anybody yet, and so I knew as I held Henry that I had my own kid too. It was just a beautiful time. I, I held him while his exhausted mama slept. And then here I was, sitting next to my own beautiful little twinkle in the church, watching Henry, handsome as all, get out, lining up and holding out his hands. I was just stunned by it all. After the service on the drive home, though, we were debriefing. Graham reported that the organ was beautiful, maybe a little bit too loud. She was concerned, though, that not enough people were singing. You know, future choir member here, so good job. She thought it was hard to hear the priest. She was fascinated by the kneelers. Absolutely fascinated by the kneelers, as most Protestants are. She loved to watch the way people genuflected before they took their seats. But mom, she said, can I tell you something I didn't like? Of course, baby, you can always talk to me. And with wisdom beyond her years, she simply said, I don't like that everybody else took communion and we didn't. And then she just let out this long sigh. Last week, Pastor Brian reminded us of the power of prophecy. And today we are hearing from another prophet from the Hebrew scriptures. Micah is prophesying in Judah during the latter half of the 8th century. In this time, there is no shortage of religious people. In fact, if you go back to Micah 3, you hear him describe an abundant religiosity with very public display. We would like to think that prophets show up to tell only the heathens that they must repent, but Micah is jarring because he shows up to speak to those in power, proclaiming a word for the people of God. Now, the last time we looked at this passage, just a few months ago, it was in the midst of talking about our strategic plan and the ways that we hope to live together as Linworth United Methodist Church. At that time, we were, were reminded of the context of today's scripture. This is a cosmic courtroom of sorts with God lodging a legal case against the people of Israel with all creation as a jury. The Lord has a controversy with his people, we hear. In the last few verses, we hear the people's reply. With what shall I come before the Lord? Instead of making attempts to counter God's claims of unfaithfulness, it's almost like it's an admission of guilt. And the people know what to do. You know, we've screwed up. God will bow down. We'll make burnt offerings. We'll bring expensive oil to be poured out. We'll atone for our transgressions, and it'll be all good, right? Wrong. This whole, what will it take to get God off of our backs mentality is precisely what the prophet Micah has come to speak against. God has told you, we hear. God has told you, the prophet declares, and then immediately he offers a paradoxical response. It is both easier and harder than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. It is so much easier than religious ritual and so much harder at the same time. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. 
I think what the prophet Micah is trying to get at is that these are not things that can be checked off of a list to keep God happy. Micah is trying to get the people to understand that this is a way of life. As Amy Oden writes, it is easy from these familiar verses in Micah to set up the false dichotomy between religious practice and genuine faith, between piety and social justice, or between being religious and being spiritual, to use a common refrain. Nowhere does Micah tell people to stop observing religious ritual practices or to stop being religious. The problem is not religion in itself. The problem is using ritual practice to excuse ourselves from the divine commands of justice and mercy. Equally troublesome is the opposite, excusing ourselves from communal practices of prayer and worship on the grounds of social justice work. Either extreme fails to be whole. Now, I've heard it all in my time in ministry. In a previous church, I had a person literally berate me after mentioning the large and all-encompassing tragedy that had happened in our community the week before. When he waggled his finger in my face, he said, I come to church to get away from all of the mess. Okay, then. And every preacher I know has faced the dilemma of having a sermon fully written by Thursday only to have some national or world event happen on Friday and Saturday and then have to make the painstaking decision to either leave the sermon alone or to chuck it all entirely and rewrite it. I think of the day when there was the shooting at the gay club in Orlando. I hadn't turned on the news on Sunday morning, and between services, my intern came in and said, how, how did you not mention Pulse Nightclub? And I said, what about Pulse Nightclub? And she said, you didn't watch the news this morning? And I said, no, I was getting ready for church. And in that moment, I had to decide how to handle the preaching. The problem isn't that the space between the church and the world is too large or too small. The problem is that there is space at all. We struggle so mightily with how to integrate our faith in our lives, our faith and our politics, claiming that if we really read the Bible, we would be more Democrat or more Republican. Our politics too often drive our faith more than our faith informs our politics, and I promise I promise this is not going to get easier or more comfortable as 2024 progresses toward the election. So what are we to do, people of God? And I think we're about to do it, actually. And in fact, we have already started it. We have gathered at the table. I've said it in every membership class I've led here, but one of the reasons that I am United Methodist and will stay that way is because this table is open to all people. While I have great respect for other faith traditions, other doctrine, other church polity, I, in my own church, never have to look at my daughter and tell her that she can't take communion here. And while when we celebrate Holy Communion, we state that all are invited to this table, I think today it is important to speak the formal words written in our United Methodist liturgy, 
If you've heard the liturgy in a formal sense, you will have heard Christ our Lord invites to his table all who love him, who earnestly repent of their sin and seek to live in peace with one another. Not just those who live in peace, but those who seek to live in peace. There's something to be done And we must repent of our sins. And this is more than, God, forgive me because I was too tired to read my devotional on Tuesday. This also means looking deeply at our lives as individuals and as a collective on every level and confessing how we have separated ourselves and others from God. In his book, God Has a Dream, Desmond Tutu writes, and I'd like to read uh, the quote for you. You are the indispensable agent of change. You should not be daunted by the magnitude of the task before you. Your contribution can inspire others, embolden others who are timid to stand up for the truth in the midst of a welter of distortion, propaganda, and deceit. Stand up for human rights where these are being violated with impunity. Stand up for justice and freedom and love where they are trampled underfoot by injustice, oppression, hatred, and harsh cruelty. Stand up for human dignity and decency at a time when these are in desperately short supply. God calls on us to be his partners to work for a new kind of society where people count, where people matter more than things, more than possessions, where human life is not just respected but positively revered, where people will be secure and not suffer from the fear of hunger, from ignorance, from disease, where there will be more gentleness, more caring, more sharing, more compassion, more laughter, and where there is peace and not war. It is an amazing calling that we have, and it is hard. Following Jesus means that we have to figure out not how to exist in the space between the church and the world, But we have to exist with no space between the church and the world. No space between Jesus and our politics. No space between our faith and our family. We need to fully integrate what we believe and what we do, both as individuals and as a community of believers. But this amazing calling can often feel like too much to take in. But you know what I've learned about the times that are too much? There's usually food. In the first hours after my dad died, my doorbell rang and a Bob Evans family feast showed up, sent by Garrett's coworkers. There were only three of us in the house. One was a very small human. We had way too much food, but at least we knew that we wouldn't have to prepare anything. When grief was too much, the generosity of others poured out through so much and through food. And in the times when our joy also feels like too much, there's also usually food. At our weddings, at our baby showers, at our graduation parties, food. We, in our celebrating, provide food as an expression of our joy and welcome to those that we want to celebrate with. We want to share in elation and in a meal. 
So today, as we approach the table of Holy Communion, instead of this being an empty thing, a ritual that we offer to God to assuage God's complaints against us, instead of communion being a thing that we do because, well, it's just what we do in church, let us instead gather at this table because it is the starting place for us. It is where Jesus gathered with those he loved in the midst of so much swirling around him to take time and to share a meal. And so at this table, through this table, we demonstrate justice, kindness, and humility in sharing with every person who comes. We don't get to impose limits, but simply offer the invitation on behalf of Jesus Christ our host. And as we heard in the beautiful anthem from the choir, God will delight when we are creators of justice and of joy. So let us start the work now.